or been a witness to something that even though you saw it happen, and even though someone told you they saw it happen, it just it seemed too good to be true. Like even though you, you may have even experienced it yourself, it just it didn't seem real. I remember a <coughs> moment I experienced personally that even though I was there, even though I witnessed it, even though I saw it with my own eyes, it just it seemed impossible. It seemed too good to be true. And of course, since it's me, it revolves around college football. And of course, it was the UVA Virginia Tech game, but not the one you're thinking about, not the one in 2019, which, you know, when UVA won the Commonwealth Cup back. And that's the last one that counts because COVID made last year not count, so we're still the Commonwealth Cup champions. We still own it. Right, John? There we go. Uh, but it was 1998. And uh, in 1998, uh, UVA had a, it was, a, it was an incredible game, and UVA was meeting, was playing at Virginia Tech. And my sister was, uh, she had some friends who went to Tech, and so she was able to get me in April some tickets to the game in the student section. So, y'all know how much of a UVA fan I am? And so I went in full UVA garb to the Virginia Tech student section to watch this game. And by the end of the game, I barely made it out a lot. But anyway, UVA had a pretty good season. It was, they, they were 8-2 going in. Even after losing Anthony Poindexter in week two to a career-ending, or without career-ending, knee injury. And so we're at the game, and you know, John's probably going to remember this game because it did not start out well for UVA, which is typical. That's just how they do things. Uh, at halftime, the score was 29-7 to 7 for Virginia Tech. It, it seemed pretty hopeless. Uh, so as I'm sitting in the stands in the student section with my UVA garb, I am being you know, ridiculed pretty severely by these, these Tech students. And uh, you know, it seemed hopeless. But then something happened. They came back from the third quarter, or the third, yeah, the third quarter, and UVA actually started to play. They started to score some runs. They started to have some defense. And they, by the end of the third quarter, the score was 29-21 Virginia Tech. So we've gotten within, you know, just a, a few a touchdown here and a two-point conversion. We're, we're getting there. We're, we're making some headway. And then, you know, by the end of by the, the fourth quarter, UVA had thrown a, a touchdown and, and Tech had gotten a field goal. But by the end, with only seven minutes left, the score was 32-29 Virginia Tech. So we're still losing... But we're only down by four. We're doing okay. We're, we've got some time. But we kicked off to Virginia Tech after a touchdown, and they they were successful in running out the clock. And so they punt the ball, and they pin UVA behind their own 10 with three minutes left on the clock. So it seems, seems hopeless. People are starting to leave. Uh, I'm not because I'm going to stay there and watch the whole thing because that's what a true fan does. Uh, and so, but it didn't, it still seemed like, oh, this is a good game. This is a good comeback, but oh, well, we're still going to lose. But something happened. There was a crucial third down conversion to keep the drive alive. And then a great catch to get the ball to the Virginia t uh, 30, 43. And then another play to get the ball to the Virginia 47. And then something amazing happened. Aaron Brooks drops back for pass. 
He's rushed by the Virginia Tech defense, and he throws it right before he's hit, and he throws the ball, and it is caught by, and I have, I forgot the name, Ahmad Hawkins. So he throws a pass, and Ahmad Hawkins, and I watched it again this week in my office on YouTube. I watched the play. Great play. Ahmad Hawkins breaks through the defense, catches it in stride, and just walks it into the end zone. Gets down on his knees, spreads his arm. It was called the comeback to score the go-ahead run. But there's still some time left on the clock, and so we kick back off the tech, and then with 47 seconds left, a UVA interception seals the game. It was an incredible comeback. And I was there, I witnessed it, but I still couldn't believe that it would ever happen. Because one thing, because I know UVA, they don't come back like that very often. It was a miracle that we got down by that much and still came back to win the game. And it just, it, was, it seemed impossible to everybody there, especially, especially the Tech fans. Once, they, once we caught that touchdown, I had to leave pretty quickly because they were not happy with me. Uh, and my sister was not there to protect me. She, she's like, you're on your own, dude. You're, you're saying <sighs> But this, this was a crucial game for another reason. Uh, me and April, we had just gotten married in August, and this was in October. Uh, of 1998. And I remember we were we got tickets to the game, and I was excited. I'm like, man, we're gonna we're gonna go to the UVA Tech game. It's gonna be a great time. And she said, you know what? I don't really, I don't really, you know, care for either. I don't. I'm not. I don't, neither one of them are my favorite. I don't cheer for UVA. I don't cheer for Tech. I guess whoever wins is who I'll cheer for for the rest of my life. And I said, no, it's not. You're gonna cheer for UVA for eternity, or we're gonna need the divorce right now. So. Luckily, she saw the error of her ways, and she cheered for UVA, and we've been together ever since. But the passage that we're going to look at today, it's a story or a true story that even to those who witnessed it, even to those who were present during this time, it seemed too good to be true. Look at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse number 1. It says, Now upon the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, why seek you the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And they returned from the sepulcher and told all these things to the eleven, and to all the rest, it was Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of, of James and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Now, this story, it always amazes me because we know the story of Jesus. Jesus, born of a virgin, according to the, the book of Isaiah, as he prophesied he would be. He came as the Messiah, and he, he spent his three-and-a-half-year ministry with these men, and he told them over and over and over again that he was going to die, 
and then three days later rise from the dead. He, he told it to them in metaphors where he's saying, you know, you'll destroy the te- I'll destroy the temple and build it again in three days. He used, you know, the re- like Jonah, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. I will be in the belly of the earth. And so, and then he told him literally, like he told Peter face to face, because remember right after this, Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. He calls him Satan. He goes, Peter, I am going to be arrested. I am going to be murdered and killed for your sins. They're going to bury me and three days later, I'm rising again. They, he told them this over and over and over again. And on the third day, nobody was there to see it. The women weren't there to see the risen Savior. They were there to anoint his body for burial. They were there to give him what they thought was the respect that was due him because they loved him. They were there to mourn. And say goodbye, not to rejoice because Jesus was risen from the grave. They were there to mourn him. We need to give him a proper burial. And the, the women who were there were the women that were closest to him. Of course, Mary Magdalene, we know who she was. She was a woman that Jesus healed from seven demons. She was possessed with seven devils, seven demons, and Jesus healed her from that affliction, and she became a, just a, a passionate follower of his. Then you've got his actual mother, the mother of Jesus Christ, who knew he was a virgin-born son of God. Everyone else could say, well, really? Are we sure? Is he making it? Mary knew She was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, so she knows that this is the promised Messiah. She knows he has said, I'm going to die and rise again three days later, and she's still not there to to see her risen son, not there to praise and worship that he's alive, but to mourn his death. They didn't believe that he would be resurrected. That That just amazes me. And so they get there, and... Other stories tell us, you know, they're not sure how they're going to even get to the body because they know that the, the Jewish leaders had, had conspired with their Roman leaders to have this, this huge stone put in front of the tomb so no one could get in, to put guards in front of it so that no one could, because they were afraid. They, they knew Jesus' teaching. They knew that Jesus said he was going to die and rise again on the third day. They didn't believe he would do it, but they're like, we have to protect his body so his his disciples don't steal his body to make everybody think that. So even as other accounts say, as they're going to the tomb, they're like, how are we going to get in? We've got the spices. We've got the stuff. We're we're prepared to, to, you know, honor him and mourn him and say goodbye to him. But how are we going to get into the the tomb? And they get there and the, the stones rolled away. The guards are gone. They walk into the tomb, and it's empty. There's nobody there. And even at that moment, a light bulb didn't go off going, oh, yeah, he said this would happen. It's like, what happened to his body? Who stole his body? Then two angels show up and say, hey, remember how he told you, like specifically told you, he would die and rise again. Yeah, yeah, I remember he said that. He did it. Go tell everybody else. So these women, they, they run and they tell the, the apostles and they tell the followers of Jesus. But look again what it says in verse 11. It says, and the words seem to them as idle tales. The word idle tales there in the Greek is the word liros. And it literally means nonsense. 
They are told, these women come to the apostles. The men who served Jesus and worked with him for three and a half years, who gave up everything to follow him. You know, Peter, who specifically was told, you know, this is going to happen no matter how much you fight against it. I'm going to die and rise again. These women come and say, hey, guys, you're not going to believe this. We went to anoint Jesus' body this morning, but the stone was gone. The guards were gone. His body was gone. We thought somebody stole it, but then some angels showed up and told us that he's really risen from the dead. Isn't that great? And they thought, that's crazy. It's nonsense. They still didn't believe it. So Jesus told these men that he was going to resurrect. He told these women this is going to happen, and they still think it's nonsense. Why is that? Why did they find it so hard to believe? He told him that it was going to happen. He told them why it was going to happen. But the idea of him not being dead seemed ridiculous. And humanly speaking, you could understand why. They saw him beaten. They saw him scourged. They saw his flesh ripped from his body as they were striking him with the cat of nine tails. They saw him get spit upon and have the crown of thorns put on his head. They saw him climb up the hill with the cross on his back. They saw him nailed to the cross and hung between heaven and earth. They saw him die. They even saw him get stabbed in the heart with a spear. He was dead. He wasn't in shock. He wasn't faking it. He was dead and they knew it because they saw it. Not only that, but they knew he'd been put in the tomb with a huge stone put in front of it and trained guards in front of that tomb to keep anybody from getting in. So there's no way anyone could get to his body. Now these women, they, they tell the story how they get to this tomb, the stone's gone, the soldiers are gone, and Jesus is gone, and then an angel reminds them of what he said. And so they go back and say, no, we saw everything with their own eyes. We spoke to the angel. We know it's true, and this is what we're telling you. And they still said, it's just not possible. Now, other accounts show us the women didn't even really believe this. In Matthew, Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb, and she's, she's weeping in the tomb because her Savior is gone and Jesus himself appears to her. But she doesn't know it's him. She thinks it's a gardener and she goes, please tell me where you hid his body. And then Jesus says her name and she realizes who it is. But even before she spoke to him, she didn't even believe it. So the, and also, you know, it was women telling this story. And now, look, I said it before, it's 2021, we're all woke, I don't believe what they believed in the time about this time about women, but this is what they did, okay? Women were not considered good witnesses because they were considered hysterical. Don't get on me, get on them. I don't believe that. I think women are great witnesses. I, I believe anything a woman says. But in this time, even a lot of women couldn't be believed because they were, they were prone to hysteria and prone to not really understanding things. Josephus, he was a, a, a Jewish historian. He said even the testimony of multiple women was not acceptable because of their levity and hysteria. So there's a lot going on for this story, but so these women come and tell it, and everyone listening, all the disciples just say, it's nonsense. There's no way that 
that really happened. Look at Peter's response. Look at verse number 12. And Peter, then, then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. So Peter, he runs to the tomb. He, gets, he sees the, the burial clothes laid there. He picks them up and he goes, I wonder what this means. And I'm like, what, what do you mean you wonder what this means? It means he rose from the dead like he said he was going to do, like the women said he had. It means Jesus is alive. But Peter leaves that tomb saying, I just, I don't know. It just, it seems impossible. It seems too good to be true. He still doesn't understand what happened. Now, to everyone that witnessed the empty tomb, it just, it seemed too good to be true. Even when they saw it personally, they thought there's just, it, it, it's too good to really happen. This is, this is too much. I'm not sure if I really believe this. So what is it about the resurrection that seemed too good to be true? What is it about this, this resurrection that they looked at it and said, you know what, it just, it, it, it seems too much. It seems too good. There's no way this could happen. There's four things I want to show that the resurrection does for us that are just too good to be true. It seem too good to be true, but they are. First number, thing it does for us, number one, we are redeemed because of the resurrection. You know, the resurrection of Jesus, it is more than a great story. And it is an incredible story to read and to study and to, to look at and to believe. It's a wonderful story, but it's more than just a great story. It is what proves to the world that God has accepted the death of Jesus Christ, his shed blood as payment for our sins. It is what shows the world that because Jesus died for our sins, God has accepted that sacrifice and washed our sins away through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 1 says this, says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of, of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the verification it is the proof that God has accepted his sacrifice as payment for our sins. Later on in Luke chapter 24, even after the, have, they have seen the empty tomb, even after Peter and James have gone to the empty tomb and come back to the other disciples and said, yeah, we, we saw it, it's, it's empty, but I just, I don't know what it means. Yeah, the body's gone, but I just... I don't know what to believe. Even after this, there are two disciples walking down the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes to them and walks with them. Now, he's, he's kind of hiding himself. He's, he's disguising himself through the spirit and so they don't really know who he is. He's blinding their eyes to who he is. So they don't know who he is, but they're kind of upset and talking about the, the, the death of Jesus and talking about the crucifixion. And so Jesus says, why, why are y'all so upset? And they, they begin to, to tell him that they are devastated over the death of this man named Jesus. Look at verse 21. It says, but we were hoping that it was he who was to redeem Israel. Moreover, today is the third day since these things happened. So they talk about Jesus. They say, oh man, there was this, 
This wonderful man came from Galilee. He, was, he did miracles. He, he walked on water. He healed people. He cast out demons. And man, he stood against the religious elite. And he just, he was a great man. And we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one that God had promised would come and redeem us and free us from this bondage. But he, he died. They crucified him. He died and he's been dead for three days. So basically what they're saying is we thought he was the Messiah, but, but he's not. We have no hope. See, the Old Testament prophets had promised time and time. And we've seen this as we've gone through the Bible. We've seen prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of God telling Israel and telling us, I am going to send a redeemer. Ever since Genesis 3, when he looks at Eve and says, you're going to have a son that's going to be the seed of, of woman, and you're going to have this child, and he's going to crush the head of the enemy. He's going to fix what was broken. So ever since then, all throughout the Old Testament, he was promising a redeemer, a deliverer. But the Jews were looking for a political redeemer. They were looking for a political deliverer. Someone to come and overthrow the Roman oppressors and set up his kingdom with the Jews as the head of it. They, they thought the Messiah would come as a warrior king to set up the kingdom of God. And so for a while... They thought that Jesus was that man because he looked like he could do that because of the miracles he performed. They thought, man, if he can heal the sick and raise the dead and walk on water, then the Roman government has no authority over him. And he can do whatever he wants to do. And he's going to be our Messiah. He's going to be our deliverer. But then he died. Then he was arrested by the Jews, put on trial by the Romans and murdered by the Romans. So they assumed that they were, they were wrong. And Jesus was not the Redeemer, but the Redeemer of the world would come one day. So, gee, the Redeemer of the world wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to overcome death. And from their viewpoint, death had defeated Jesus. Because, again, the tomb's empty. The women have seen the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene has seen Jesus. Peter's seen the clothes. They know he's not there, but they don't believe he's alive. So to them, the Redeemer has not yet come. The resurrection proves that Jesus came to offer a different kind of redemption. He didn't come to redeem us from a political enemy. He came to redeem us from the greatest enemy man has ever faced, and that is sin. In addition to prophesying that a warrior king would come to bring peace on earth one day, the Bible also taught that our sin brought a penalty. Even in Genesis, God said, the day you eat of this fruit, this forbidden fruit, that day you will die. Now, he didn't mean they would die immediately because they didn't. But he goes, your disobedience to God, your sin against God, your rebellion against God will bring death. Sin leads to death because it's rebellion against the Holy God. See, sin is us telling God that, God, you shouldn't be in charge because I know better than you what I need. I know better than you what is best for me. So I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that is something that every single one of us has done at some point in our life. You say, I've never said that to God. You may not have said that to God, but you've lived like that against God. 
You have lived your life like you know more, you know better, you don't need God. We all have because we were all born sinners. It is because we are under the curse. And because of that curse of sin, God says we have to die. The cross is Jesus redeeming us from that curse. It is him paying the price for our sin because we never could have paid it. That was the point of the law. You know, the law had a lot of points. It was to be a school teacher and to show people God. But the main purpose of the law was God saying, if you want to pay your sin debt, if you want to be perfect and you want to come to heaven when you die, then you have to obey every single point of this law perfectly your entire life with no mistakes, no mess ups, nothing. If you do that, then you can come to heaven. And no one could do that except Jesus. Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled the law. He completed and obeyed every aspect of the law. So when he died on the cross, we said this last week in April, we got home uh, last Sunday. And I said, how, how, how'd you like the message? She goes, I didn't like you calling Jesus a sinner. Like I wasn't calling Jesus a sinner, saying Jesus became sin for us. That's what the Bible says. Jesus became my sin. So when he hung on the cross, God put my sin on him. So when God looked at him, he didn't see Jesus. He saw my sin. And Jesus took my sin and died for my sin as a sacrifice. But because he actually was sinless, God accepted his death for my sin as payment for my sin. See, every time in the Old Testament when they would, you know, have the Day of Atonement and they would place their hand on the lamb and symbolically transfer their sin to that lamb and then sacrifice that lamb, that lamb, his sacrifice only covered their sin for a little while because that lamb, even if it was spotless and without blemish, wasn't perfect. It was a lamb. And lambs, even though, you know, they're, they're living in the sinful world, so they're not perfect. But Jesus came as the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. So when God placed my sin on Jesus, and Jesus, as a perfect, sinless Lamb of God, died for my sins, God said, That is the sacrifice required to pay the sin debt for all of mankind. Didn't just cover it for a while, it took it away completely. And Jesus, Him down on the cross, He was redeeming us from the curse of death. Isaiah said that God would lay on the Messiah the iniquity of us all and that the price of our peace would be on the head of the Messiah. Paul says in Corinthians that when Jesus died, he took the sting out of death. The sting of death was the curse of sin. Death ends our life on earth but it puts us in a place of eternal judgment. And Jesus took that sting on himself when he died. He took the judgment and the wrath of God for my sins and your sins and the whole world's sins when he died on the cross. As children of God, if we've accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sin, we have nothing left to fear because death doesn't bring judgment for us. Death brings restoration to God the Father. So here's the second thing that makes the resurrection too good to be true. It's too good to be true because through the resurrection we have a new life. Now, sin not only put a curse on us, it put a curse 
in us. Death is at work in every single one of us this morning. All of us are born dying. If Jesus doesn't come back, we're all going to die one day. And there's nothing you can do to stop that. There's nothing you can do to avoid that. That is the curse in us. But it, it's not just physical death. We see it in addictions. We see it in hate and selfishness and racism and anger and idolatry and destroyed relationships. Jesus' resurrection means that there is a power in us that, that God gives us that helps us overcome anything that the world puts on us. Look what Romans 6 says. says Do you not know? That we who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that if we are in Christ, we are a new creature. He says the old things about you have passed away and you are made new. Again, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, the word behold there in, in this time, it was, in the Bible, it's used to talk about a miracle about to happen. Remember talks in the, when Jesus was born? Behold, unto you in, in the city of David is born a Savior. It's like, hey, there's a miracle that is about to happen or has just happened. And it always points to something God does for us. Never something we do. It's not, behold, look, David did a great thing. No, it's, look, behold, God did something incredible. And it's something that God does that we could never do on our own. It's not, so the newness of life in you is not you trying to get better, trying to be more moral, trying to lead a better life. It is God giving you the Holy Spirit power that will change you through his power and change you into his image. That means that Jesus is not only able to forgive every sin, but he can reverse and restore everything sin has destroyed. He puts together broken hearts. He renews and rebuilds what sin has destroyed. We say that in Mary Magdalene. You know, Mary Magdalene was one of the women at the temple. She's one of the first ones there. Mary Magdalene was... In the Gospel of Mark, it says that she had seven demons in her. Not one. One is bad enough. She had seven. Seven devils. Now, a lot of people say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. There is no biblical evidence to back that up. It's just something people say. She may have been. She may not have been. But I do know if you're a person with seven demons inside of you, you're going to look mentally ill. You're going to look crazy. You're, prob you're more than likely going to be very immoral because seven devils are controlling you. So she would have seemed extremely immoral to people. Her life before Jesus was hopeless. I don't know if she was a prostitute or not, but I bet she didn't have a job. Who's going to hire a crazy woman with seven devils in her? Nobody. Nobody wants that in their, in their shop or their house, and nobody wants to be around that. So she's hopeless, she's destitute, she's an outcast, she's forgotten, she's given up on. And in Luke 8, she falls at Jesus' feet, and she finds healing. She is the first person that Jesus appears to after his resurrection. Not his mother. 
Not the woman who birthed him and raised him until he went into the ministry. Not his, his earthly mother. This woman who was broken and hopeless and helpless without him. He's the one, she's the one that he appears to. She was made new after meeting Jesus. And that's the promise of the resurrection. Whatever you're struggling with today, whatever addiction or relationship problems or hurt from the past, Jesus can restore it. The resurrection means that that power is available to you. So third reason that the resurrection seems to be good to be true is because number three, we have restoration. You said, didn't you just say that? No, new life and restoration are different things. I'm going to show you that. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. What does that mean? It is a taste of what is to come. It is a taste of what we will receive one day. In those days, and I know today it's, it's similar, but you know, if you, had a, 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 you, you were a farmer, you really didn't know how your crops were going to turn out. Today it's a little, I know you still don't 100% know, but it's a little easier. You've got fertilizer and irrigation systems and you can you know, do, make the soil and there's enough science for us to know, well, if I plant this, then in this way it'll grow good. In these days, you really had no idea. You couldn't, there was no farmer's almanac to tell you, I better water my, I better put in an irrigation ditch to water my plant. You just, you were at the mercy of the weather. So you didn't know what your heart, what your crop was going to be like. And the first fruits showed you what your crop was going to be like. Was it going to be good? Was it going to not be very, very, was it not going to be very big or not very good? So the first fruits gave you a taste of what was to come. The resurrection shows us what we can expect at the next resurrection of the dead. See, death is one of the biggest fears in the world. Death is the third biggest fear worldwide, which amazes me. Public speaking is number one. That means more people would rather be dead than do what I'm doing right now. I'd rather be dead than speaking to somebody, but Whatever floats your boat, it's not just our death, it is, you know, death of a loved one, losing someone to death. The resurrection promises us that not only is the sting of death gone, but the loss in death is gone too. When we lose a loved one that is saved, it's not goodbye forever. It's farewell till I see you again one day. Because we have the promise that death has been conquered, that we will see them again one day. And we know that because since Jesus resurrected, we'll be resurrected again one day as well. We'll be restored to life as it was meant to be. One day, God, when he resurrects everything and we have the new heaven and the new earth, everything will be as it was supposed to be in the beginning. No pain, no heartbreak, no sorrow, no coronavirus, no governments to worry about, no political agendas to get stuck up on. All we got to worry about is worshiping Jesus. Everything will be as it's supposed to be. It will be restored to how God made it in the garden. The book of Isaiah says that the lion will lay down with the lamb. It says that you can, a child can stick his hand in a, a, a hole full with, full of snakes 
and not be bitten. Look, I'm still not doing that in the new heaven and new earth. And the new, I'm still not petting a snake in, in, in paradise. They, they, they're creepy no matter what. Even if they got their legs back, I'm still staying away from them. But I could if I wanted to. Paul says that death will be swallowed up in victory. See, the pain that we experience on this life, it's part of the victory story. You know what makes the, the story about UVA coming back to beat Virginia Tech in 1998 so great? They started out so terrible. If, if the game had started and UVA just scored point after touchdown after touchdown after touchdown and shut out Tech, it's not a great... Now, as a UVA fan, it's a great story. But it's not really a great sports story. What makes it a great sports story is, man, they were down 21 to 29 to 7 and they came back to win the game. It's a great story because it looked hopeless in the beginning. Life is unpredictable, especially now. But one thing is certain. If Jesus doesn't return, we're all going to die. Simple as that. But our story doesn't end at death. As a child of God, because of the empty tomb, our story begins at death. That's where eternity begins for us. Final thing that makes the resurrection seem too good to be true is number four, that we will not be abandoned. See, the resurrection shows us that in those moments that we feel forgotten by God, that we feel abandoned by God, that we feel that God is nowhere to be seen, that we can know that God has not forgotten us and he's still at work. You know, I've always wondered, why, when Jesus died on the cross, why did God not raise him right away? Why wait three days? He could have died, had his heart punctured, and then, you know, oh, look, I'm back, and, you know, floated over everybody and, you know, shown he was God. He could have had God from heaven again and say, he's not dead anymore. But he, he, did. he waited three days. Why wait three days? You know, there's a, every Easter, there's a huge debate on Facebook, you know, I'm part of several pastors groups or ministry groups. There's a huge debate about whether Jesus died on Friday or Wednesday. And everybody's got a, a different reason why. Well, the Jewish calendar during this time, if, you, if it was any part of a day, it was a full day. So Friday and Saturday, and then, you know, he was a, a risen before sunup on Sunday. So that's, a third, so that's three days, and that's true. And some people are like, no, that's not how the calendar worked. And if you go by the Passover stuff, and, and so, and everybody always asks me, people ask me, when do you think he died? Friday? And I've heard people say Thursday. Did he die Friday, Thursday, or Wednesday? To me, it doesn't matter when he died, because he rose Sunday. So he could have died on Wednesday, he still rose on Sunday. If he died on Friday, he still rose on Sunday. See, the, the day he dies is as important as the fact that Sunday came and he rose from the grave. But when he died, whatever day it was, when he died, the first day, disciples thought he's gone. It's all over with. It's, you know, it's hopeless. We put our faith and our trust in him and he's gone. Second day, he's still dead. What are we going to do? We, we left our jobs for this guy. We give up everything for this guy. And he's still dead. And on those, those two days, they thought everything was hopeless. But what, what does the Bible say Jesus was doing during that time? 
He was leading captivity captive. He went down into hell and got those saints who had died waiting for him to come. And he went up into heaven with his blood and sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. And God accepted his sacrifice. So he went to hell and led all the captives to heaven. He was doing stuff. But they didn't see it. But the third day came. And he rose from the grave, proving that even though it looked like he was gone, he had never left him. God will never leave you. You may not understand what God is doing. You may not even see what God is doing. But God is always doing something. God is always working in your life for your good and for his glory. God will never abandon us. So he waited three days to show us that even when we feel like God has abandoned us, even if we feel like God has forgotten us, God has left us. Resurrection day is coming. Resurrection day is coming and he will never leave us. He may seem distant, but he's still working for your good and for his glory. So you may be in a season of darkness right now. Waiting for God to answer a prayer. Waiting for God to bring a wayward child home. Waiting for God to heal a wound, to, to bind up a hurt. But don't give up because no matter what you see God doing or if you even don't even think God's doing anything, God is working it for your good. You know, the truth of the resurrection seems too good to be true because of what it does for us. Because of the resurrection, we are redeemed to God the Father. We are reconciled to God the Father. The Bible says that we were born enemies of God, opposed to God, rebels against God. But through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are made children of God, joint heirs with Jesus. Because of the resurrection, we have new life. Not just a new life in heaven, but we have a new life on here. See, what the new life gives you is we, as God's children, don't have the, the right or the, we don't have, we can't say, I can't help myself. I'm just who I am. God's made me who I am and I can't change. No, with the Holy Spirit, you can change. God can take you from what you are and shape you into his image. That's the resurrection gives you that power. Because of the resurrection, we have the power of restoration. Because of the resurrection, we will never be abandoned. That's why it seemed like nonsense to the apostles that day. But that's what the women at the tomb were telling us today. That, yeah, it seems crazy. Seems impossible. Seems unnatural. But it's true. God has, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's done all this for us. That's what the death, burial, and resurrection gives us as his children. So we have a choice this morning. We have to, first of all, accept his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins. If you've never done that, that's your first step. Say, God, I know that I'm a sinner condemned to hell, deserving of hell. There's nothing I can do about it to get away from it. But, Lord, you, you came and did for me what I could never do. You lived a perfect, sinless life. You died for me. You suffered for me. God poured out his wrath on you for my sin. You died in my place and you rose again. I accept that as payment for my sin. Maybe you're here this morning like, like most of us and you've already accepted him as your savior. You know for sure that when you close your eyes in death, 
You're going to open them up and see Jesus Christ face to face. You know that. You still have power in the resurrection. Power to change for His glory and His honor. And power to know that no matter what you're facing, God's never left you and God never will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you.